You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Growing up, I believed that tears were a sign of weakness. No one ever told me that. I guess that was just my assumption running around with my friends, my buddies, playing sports. I just believe that, that tears were a sign of weakness. And so I was a person that would avoid tears at all costs. But what if I told you this morning that tears produced by mourning are actually a sign of spiritual progress. What if I told you that tears are, are an important step forward in your spiritual journey? Well, that's precisely the point that we're going to see this morning in the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 5. So turn there with me. We are continuing our sermon series on the Beatitudes which is the title given to the introduction to a sermon that Jesus preached, commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read just verse 4 this morning. So when you found your place, I want to ask you if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, verse Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray together this morning. Father, in this moment, we, we are reminded of our need for you. We believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. We need you to move in our midst by the power of the Holy Spirit to take your word, your unchanging, infallible, inerrant word, and apply it to our hearts. That we might understand and that we might be changed. Help us to understand, Lord, what this beatitude that we will study this morning means. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Help us this morning to rejoice in, to exult in, to celebrate in the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I just mentioned, the first part of this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached near the beginning of his three-year public ministry is called the Beatitudes. It's the intro to the sermon. 
The phrase or the word beatitudes comes from the Latin word for blessed. And we see that eight times Jesus mentions a characteristic that brings blessing and promise. But here's what you need to understand. The word blessed means something like happy, but much more than happy. It speaks of favorable circumstances. It speaks of a deep inner satisfaction. A satisfaction that comes when you know you are right with God and right with others. The first beatitude and the eighth beatitude serve as sort of parentheses to the entire section. And they're both about the kingdom of heaven. The reward for the beatitude is the kingdom of heaven. So the entire section we call the Beatitudes is about the kingdom of heaven. D.A. Carson says it like this. These are the norms of the kingdom. And our lives as kingdom citizens, those that know Jesus, should be characterized by these qualities. So let me give you this statement. It's there in your notes as a way to kind of understand the Beatitudes as a whole. The Beatitudes are characteristics of kingdom Citizens that lead to true fulfillment in life. That's what these are. Characteristics of kingdom citizens that lead to true fulfillment in life. And we've made it to the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4, for they shall be comforted. So what I want to do this morning is I want to just ask two questions about this beatitude. And then answer those questions from the Word of God. Question number one that emerges is this. What does it mean to mourn? Blessed are those who mourn. What does it mean to mourn? Well, let me give you the answer to that question and I'll kind of unpack that. To mourn is to be broken over our spiritual condition. To mourn is to be broken over our spiritual condition. It's, it's, it's really amazing to see how these Beatitudes are connected to one another. And I believe that the Beatitudes build on one another. And this second Beatitude builds upon the first. So if you remember last week, we talked about the first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I told you last week to be poor in spirit is to recognize your spiritual poverty or bankruptcy. It's to recognize that you bring nothing to the table. You need grace. You need salvation. You need Jesus. You need the Lord. It's a recognition that you are unable to save yourself. You need some help. Spiritual bankruptcy. And this second beatitude about mourning builds upon the first. In other words... If you understand that spiritually speaking, you bring nothing to the table, then it should produce a response of mourning. You might say it like this. The, the second beatitude is an emotional response to the first. Poor in spirit leads to mourning. The great English preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. He's actually Welsh, but he preached in London he wrote, to mourn is something that follows of necessity from being poor in spirit. It is quite inevitable, he says. As I confront God and his holiness and contemplate the life that I'm meant to live, I see myself, my utter helplessness and hopelessness. 
I discover my quality of spirit, and immediately that makes me mourn. I, I must mourn about the fact that I am like that. In other words, Lloyd-Jones says, when I, when I look at the holiness of God, when I look at his perfection and his righteousness, and I understand his, his expectations for my life, and I see just how far short I fall. I see that I am a ruined sinner that cannot save myself. I need some help. When I come to that place of recognizing my real, true, spiritual condition, it leads to an emotional response of mourning. Or let me say it like this. To mourn is to grieve over sin and its effects. To mourn is to grieve over sin and its effects. You see, sin offends a holy God and separates us from Him. Sin brings dysfunction and pain. Have you experienced that yet in life? (laughs) Sin brings dysfunction and pain. Sin produces guilt and shame. Sin disrupts relationships. And we could go on and on and on about the insidious, destructive nature of sin in your life and my life. Sin grieves God. We think about sin on the, the, the personal level. We've all got failings in our lives. We've all disobeyed God. We've all done things God's told us not to do. Can I get a witness? And we've all not done some things God's told us to do. Can I get a witness? Sins of omission, sins of commission. We've all sinned against God. So we see sin in our personal lives. And we, and we see its effect in our hearts. How it, how it brings us to a place of spiritual poverty. We see sin in family. Hey, hey let's, just all, let's just all be honest this morning. Every family, come in close, every family has dysfunction, right? And if you say your family doesn't have dysfunction, you're the dysfunctional one because you're not dealing with reality. Every family has dysfunction, and that dysfunction comes because of sin, We just don't act the way we ought to act. We don't treat each other the way we ought to treat each other. We fail each other. We deceive each other. We hurt each other. And sin has its effect at the personal level and at the family level. Of course, there's cultural sin. I mean, just look around you. We see a rapidly disintegrating society driven by a society that calls everything right, wrong, and everything wrong, right. is topsy-turvy. And we see it disintegrating all around us. And so we mourn. Now you might be here and say, well, Pastor Wade, I thought mourn meant like, you know, mourning something that makes you sad in life. Like mourning the death of a loved one. Well, it does. And can I remind you that the death of a loved one is a reality because of sin. You see, when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and their rebellion against God... The world came under a curse. We sang a song in VBS years ago, and, and it was just a really catchy tune, but it goes like this. Sin messed everything up. That's why we have natural disasters. 
That's why we have cancer and diabetes and other physical uh, maladies because sin entered the world and we live in a fallen world and it's messed everything up. And even when we lose loved ones as a result of living in a fallen world, we mourn, but that mourning can be traced back to the effects of sin in our world. And so Jesus says, this emotional response to spiritual poverty, this emotional response to spiritual bankruptcy, actually is a step in the right direction. Because notice he says, Blessed are those who mourn. Now let me just talk for a moment about that word mourn. It's a really interesting word. It comes from the Greek participle uh, penthuntis. And it denotes sorrow, listen to this, expressed in lamentation and tears. I mean this is a, a sorrow that is so deep that it produces an emotional response. This word was used in the Bible to speak of Mourning over the death of a loved one. For example, in Mark chapter 16, verse 10, this word was used to speak of those mourning the death of Jesus prior to hearing about his resurrection. It says they mourned, same word, penthuntis, and wept. This same word was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 37, 35, when Jacob was told that Joseph was dead. He wasn't really dead. His sons were lying to him. But they told their dad that his son Joseph was dead. And Jacob said, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Same word. Same word. And then it said, thus his father wept for him. This idea of mourning at this level produces tears. It produces lamentation. It's grief that is outwardly expressed. One author said, listen to this, it's grief too deep for concealment. That's the word mourn here used in Matthew 5.4. Now there's a more general word for grief used in the New Testament. It's the word uh, lupistai, but that's not the word that's used here. It's a specific word, a stronger word for mourning that provokes an emotional Response. It speaks to the intensity with which we should mourn. When we truly understand how sin has wrecked our lives and wrecked the lives of those around us, it should bring us to a place of mourning. So here's the question. When's the last time you shed a tear over your sin? When's the last time you shed a tear over the effects of Why don't we do this? Why don't we find ourselves mourning over the reality of sin in our own lives and in the lives of others? Here's why. In our current cultural climate, we've learned to compartmentalize, put sin over here in a box. And, you know, it's, it's this box, but it doesn't really, it's not really who I am. We've learned to compartmentalize. We've learned to minimize. No big deal. And we've learned to rationalize our sin. And those are all coping techniques that keep us from dealing with what sin really is. 
Sin is a spiritual cancer. It's destructive. It, it destroys everything in its path. It's a spiritual tsunami, if you will. And when you come to grips with that fact, it will lead you to reflect upon your life and maybe even produce tears. There's an illustration of this in the Bible in a really dramatic story. It was a night cold enough to warrant a fire. Jesus was arrested, betrayed by the kiss of a friend named Judas, one of his disciples. He was taken to the high priest's house, Caiaphas' house, to be tried, to be questioned by the religious leaders. The disciples scattered, but, but Peter, Peter, called by Christ, changed by Christ, he followed at a distance. He wanted to see what was going to happen to his master. He apparently knew somebody that knew somebody because he was allowed into the courtyard just outside of the home of Caiaphas. And on that chilly evening, early in that, that, that morning, he gathers around a fire to keep himself warm. And others are gathered on this dramatic evening. They heard that Jesus had been arrested. They heard that the Sanhedrin was being brought together, that Jesus was being questioned. And, and in the, the light of the fire, people began to look at Peter. And one person said, hey, aren't, aren't you one of the disciples that was with Jesus? Peter said, no, no. Another person sees Peter and said, wait, I... Aren't you one of the Galileans that was walking around? No. The third time he's questioned. And one of the gospels says that he answered with an oath. He cursed. I'm not with Jesus. He denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Jesus told him it was coming before the cock would crow. He would deny Jesus three times. And upon the third denial, he hears the cock crow. He remembers the words of Jesus. And in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 61, something interesting happens. The Bible says that Peter's out in the courtyard. Jesus is there in the kind of the patio area surrounding Caiaphas' house. He can see out into the courtyard. And the Bible says that upon the third denial, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine denying Jesus three times and then you have to look into his eyes? Can you imagine the guilt, the shame of that moment? I thought I was brave. I thought I would follow Christ wherever he would go. But when the rubber met the road, I denied him three times. And the Bible says, listen, that after he looked into the eyes of Jesus, he went out and he wept bitterly. Matthew 5, 4. In a dramatic way, his own sin was brought to the surface of his heart. He saw the depth of his failure. He felt the guilt and the shame. And his emotional response to his spiritual bankruptcy was to go and weep at some dark corner in Jerusalem. 
That's an example of what it looks like to realize the reality of your sin. And it produce a, a brokenness in your life. So that's what it means to mourn. It means that you feel the weight of your sin and it produces grief in your life. Now, if that was the end of the sermon, that would be depressing. If I said, okay, guys, have a good day. Have a good afternoon. We're dismissed. Wouldn't that be a terrible place to end the sermon? But notice the verse doesn't stop with, with mourning. It's, it's a step of progress in your spiritual journey, but it's not the final destination. Because look what he says there in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's good news. And so the second question is this. Well, how does God comfort us? When we find our, when we see our own failure, our own brokenness, when we understand that, that we are spiritually impoverished and bankrupt and, and we feel the weight of that, how in the world does God comfort us in our sin? Well, I've got five answers to that question that come from the Word of God. These are the ways that God comforts us when we find ourselves mourning. Experience the blessedness of mourning. Number one, how does God comfort us? By turning away his anger and forgiving us. By turning away his anger and forgiving us. Over in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord is speaking to his people, the Jews. And he says, you will say in that day, and that day is when Jesus returns and said everything right. You will say in that day... I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, they, they, they understood their, their rebellion against him. Though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. Listen, that you might comfort me. You made a way for your anger to be turned away so you could give me comfort. That's what they're saying here in this verse. This speaks of the theological reality of propitiation. You say, Pastor Wade, what in the world is propitiation? It's a big word. It's a Bible word. And here's what it means. It means that God made a way for your sin to be punished by his wrath. But the way he made was this. He punished another in your place so that you would not have to face the wrath of God that your sin deserves. That's what the gospel is all about. God sent his only son, Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent Jesus to this earth, the second person of the Trinity, who took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect, matchless life, and he went to the cross for you and for me. And the Bible teaches that on the cross, he became sin for us. Here's what that means. Now, come, come in close. This is important. It means that everything you've ever done wrong, everything you've ever thought wrong, everything you've ever said wrong, Every wrong inclination of your heart, every wrong motivation, everything, all sin in your life, Jesus took it on himself. The Bible says he became sin for us. And on the cross, 
God the Father poured out his wrath that our sin deserves. And he poured it out upon Jesus, his son. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. Propitiation means he satisfied the wrath of God. And over in 1 John 2, 2, it says he's the propitiation for our sin. Not ours only, but those of the whole world. Jesus died for the sins of the world, taking the wrath of God that our sin deserves. And here's what that means. If you come to a place in your spiritual life of spiritual poverty, blessed are the poor in spirit, spiritual mourning, I've blown it, I'm not right with God, I, I can't get right with God, sin is, has, has messed everything up. If you will turn to Jesus, if you will place your faith and trust in His finished work, what He's done for you, He died on the cross, He was buried, He rose from the grave to defeat death itself. If you will place your faith in Christ, he, listen, He will apply His shed blood, His sacrificial substitutionary death to your spiritual account. His shed blood will wash away your sins. That means you're forgiven. You don't have to face the wrath of God. Why? Jesus took your wrath for you. You say, Pastor Wade, sin's done a number on me. Well, guess what? God will bring you comfort by reminding you that Jesus took the punishment for you. And in Christ you are saved and never have to face the wrath of God your sin deserves. I remember early on when my two oldest sons were, were little guys, I was trying to teach them this idea of, of substitution. And, and, and I, I just kind of made up an illustration. I said um, to, to, my, uh, to my, my second son, Caleb, I said, Caleb... Um, let's just say that you did something wrong. You, you disobeyed dad, and uh, I was going to punish you. And right before I punished you, your older brother Cameron walked in the room and says, Hey, wait a minute, dad. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know Caleb's guilty. I know that he's blown. I know that he did the wrong thing. But, you know, I want to take his punishment for him. Now, I said to Caleb, I said, Caleb, would Cameron ever do that for you? He said, No. And I said, exactly. That's what Jesus did for you. He took your punishment for you because he loves you. And sin messes everything up. But in Christ, your sins can be washed away. And you never have to fear God's wrath. Jesus paid it. Secondly, how does God comfort us when we mourn over our sin? By restoring us when we fall. Hey, did you realize that even when you become a Christian and your sins are forgiven and you're reconciled to God and have a relationship with Him, and even though that relationship can never be broken, did you realize that sometimes even as Christians you stumble? Can I get a witness? Can I raise your hand? Anybody in here stumble? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, you're lying. You just stumbled right then. We've all blown it, even in our Christian lives, right? 
I mean, I promise you, if you followed me around this week, I'd let you down at some point. I would try not to, but I would. I'd let you down. And if I followed you around, you'd let me down. Sometimes it feels like the Christian life is, is, you know, one step forward and two steps back. And then three steps forward and then one step back. But we find ourselves in this life stumbling sometimes. And even as Christians, we mourn over the, the remnants of sin in our heart, the old sin nature that's still tugging us in the wrong direction. It has no power over us anymore, but, it, but, but sometimes we let it have power over us. And here's the deal. When you stumble and fall as a Christian, God will comfort you with his restoration. It says over in Psalm 23, 3, when the Lord is your shepherd, he will restore your soul. And this was experienced by King David. A man after God's own heart decided that he wanted Bathsheba, a beautiful woman, as his lover. She was married to one of his mighty men, Uriah. So David committed adultery with Bathsheba. She became pregnant from David. And to cover up this scandal, David had Uriah, her husband, murdered. Adultery and murder who the Bible called previously a man after God's own heart. David blew it big time. Scandalous, evil, sin, rebellion, wickedness, iniquity. He's confronted by Nathan the prophet, and we hear his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, David recognizes he had sinned against God. He had grieved the heart of God. And in Psalm 51, he cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Purge me as with hyssop. Make me clean again. I've rebelled against you. And I believed even in that moment of great wickedness, David experienced the restoring hand of God. And here's what I want you to understand this morning. Maybe you're here and you think, no way, no way can God restore me from what I've done. And I say, look to David. Our God is a gracious, merciful, restoring God. Hey, remember Peter? Last time we were with Peter, he was at some corner in Jerusalem weeping bitterly. In John 21, after his resurrection, Jesus appears to Peter, cooks some fish for him, breakfast on the beach... And Jesus spends some time restoring Peter. As if to say, Peter, I'm not done with you yet. I've got a purpose for your life. Go and feed my sheep. Take care of my flock. Follow me. I've got a plan for your life, Peter. And there on that beach, Peter felt the restoring hand of a merciful Savior. When you find yourself mourning over your sin, over your failure... God will comfort you with his restoration. If you feel like you've done something, you're far from God, run to him and let him cleanse your heart. A new and afresh, 1 John 1, 9 says that when we sin, 
we can confess our sin to him. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He comforts us by turning his anger away and forgiving us. He comforts us by restoring us when we fall. He comforts us by mending our brokenness. Sin has its effects on your life. Its fingerprints on your heart. And Psalm 147.3 says this, He, the Lord, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a little raw, spiritually speaking, because of some stuff in your life you've not dealt with. And I want you to know that even though sin is real and destructive and has brought you to a place of spiritual mourning, If you will let the Lord have his way in your life, he will heal the brokenness. He'll bind up the wounds and get you back on your feet. Listen to this. Did you know that sin brings consequences? The Bible is very clear in Galatians 6 that what a person sows, that he will also what? Reap. You reap what you sow. Sin has consequences. And maybe you've, you've blown it and you're experiencing the consequences of your sin and rebellion against God. But listen to this. God will even help you through those consequences. He'll even minister to you through those consequences. He's a healing, restoring God. So he will mend our Brokenness. How does God comfort us? Turns his anger away, forgives us. He restores us when we fall. He mends our brokenness. But here's the final thing I want you to see. We're just going to celebrate for a moment thinking about this together. He comforts us by giving us the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven. As long as you and I live in this fallen world, we will deal with the reality of sin in our own hearts. We'll deal with the reality of sin in the lives and actions of those around us. We'll deal with the realities of sin in a fallen world. The consequences of sin entering the world through Adam and Eve. Sin messed everything up. And we feel that every single day. But I've got good news for you today. This world is not our home. This is not the final destination. We are just passing through. And the Lord says to us, there is coming a day you will no longer deal with the realities of sin. And that should comfort us. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, after the The Apostle Paul has spoken of a day when Jesus returns and the dead in Christ are raised and those who are alive who are believers will be caught up in the Lord with the air, the rapture. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's the word comfort, the same word used in Matthew 4.5. Encourage, comfort one another with his words. In other words, there's coming a day when Jesus will come and bring you all to heaven. 
if you know him. And that should bring you comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man feasting at his table day after day. The poor man begging for food. Dogs licking his sores. And Jesus shares this story as an illustration of this. Your station in life does not determine your place in eternity. You can have everything in this life but not have Jesus and you will die and go to hell. But even if you have nothing in this life like the poor beggar, if you have the Lord, you get to go be with him in heaven. And in Luke chapter 16 verse 25, Abraham said to the rich man who's crying out in anguish, separated from the Lord in a place of conscious torment. Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now, listen to what he says, he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Yes, this, this man, Lazarus, had a difficult life, a difficult life. Begging for food, dogs licking his sores. But now he's experiencing the comfort of being in heaven, paradise. That's the point. And then in Revelation 21, 4 and 5, we see the ultimate expression of the comfort we will experience in heaven. Revelation 21 speaks of the the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth. The old heavens and the old earth pass away. The Lord brings in the new heavens and the new earth. And it says in Revelation 21 verse 4, He, Jesus, listen to this, will wipe every tear from their eyes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The tears that sin brings, the tears that are a result of living in a fallen, ruined world. The Bible says one day when we all get to heaven, Jesus himself will wipe away those tears. And listen to this. You ever mourned the death of a loved one? Have you mourned the death of a loved one recently? Many of you in this church have. The Bible says, on that day, death shall be no more. You'll never cry over the death of a loved one again when you get to heaven. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what heaven is about. Jesus lifts us from the depths of this fallenness that we live in. The fallenness that we experience in our own hearts. And he makes everything new. And if you step into heaven mourning, you will be comforted by Jesus Christ himself. Every tear. He'll wipe away. That is a promise in Scripture. 
So I guess what I'm saying is this. God comforts now in part. We walk through this old world. But on that day, when we all get to heaven, he will comfort us completely. We get to experience that. And so Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Not trying to compartmentalize or rationalize or minimize. They understand that sin is awful. It's a bad deal. It brings brokenness and destruction. Blessed are those who mourn because there's coming a day when they will be completely comforted by the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is good news. All of this comfort is found in Christ and Christ alone. And so listen to me. I was taught tears are a bad thing. I want to stay away from from crying. Tears are a sign of weakness. This verse reminds us that tears are actually, rightly understood, a sign of spiritual progress. It's an understanding of the realities of sin and the glory of redemption. The comfort that God gives you in His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.